Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. On the show today, I've got Denise Brody. She's the Chief Marketing Officer of Appian. Appian is a low-code, solution-focused organization, helping their customers become more agile, creative, and connected than ever. Denise is focused on their growth as driving awareness of Appian's solutions. Before Appian, she was a global COO in an industry cloud organization at SAP, a $10 billion business unit, and she has also been the CMO, COO at Workforce Software. On the show today, Denise and I talk about her new role, uh, how she became the CMO at Appian, uh, what that transition's been like in a virtual environment, and uh, success criteria and things to think about as you manage your career or take on that new role. I hope you enjoy this conversation with my friend, Denise Brody. Well, Denise, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Alan. You know, we've met through events in the past and you know, here we are recording a virtual interview. Um, I can't wait till we can see each other in person again. <laughs> I know. I think the last time I was standing with you at uh, one of the restaurants here in New York having a glass of wine together. I know. it's. It, it feels like years ago at this point. It does. <laughs> it does. <laughs> well, let's talk about your, your new role. You're the CMO at Appian. And um, 
let's start with like what's been your journey to to becoming the CMO at Appian. Wow, you know when I, you, I saw this question, I was thinking to myself, I can't not believe that I've been doing B two B software for twenty five years. It's been a complete zigzag, and if you look at my background, definitely not purely a marketing focus. Done everything between consulting. I actually even programmed in mainframe at one point in my career. And uh, in 2000, I headed out to California to chase my startup dream and moved from the East Coast and ironically um, came to this great little company called Top Tier with Shai Gossi. And then a few months later, the company got acquired by SAP. And at SAP, I was able to do just a little bit of everything to really build out my toolkit, right? And coming in to do everything from business development, dabbled with the partner community, launched new products, had a chance to even build a business case for the CFO buying center that went from 15 million to 600 with SAP products as well as acquisition products. And after 15 years, I ended my stint there as a COO for Industry Cloud which was about a 10 billion business touching 25 industries and 13 lines of business. And by the way, I kind of, you know, looked at my journey and I was like, you know, what was next? I really wanted to try private equity and I went and did a turnaround at Workforce Software, really leveraging my network there. Five years, learned a lot, had never done the private equity piece and at the fourth year, we were able to sell the majority share to another private equity. And then at the fifth year mark, uh, Appian came along and I started to research the market. Very interesting. Appian focuses on low code, which is a new way to create applications. And this really surged in 2020 because of COVID, right? The ability for companies to have a platform where they could build apps, but quickly adapt to change. And as everybody was remote, how do you create apps by coming in and doing a drawing a workflow diagram? with the ability to, instead of building it for, you know, six months to a year, to do it in weeks and to be able to drive change. So at Appian, we help you build apps and workflow rapidly with a low-code automation platform, which has been very interesting to take the concept of combining people, technology, and data into what we call a single workflow to really come in and improve business results for companies. But, you know, what really brought me to Appian is I love the culture. It's definitely a culture of dissent. Everyone loves to discuss and debate things here. It's also a culture of transparency, which is given the given me really an opportunity to come back into the public market and focus around business to drive an impact uh, and also have a great culture to back that up. That's fascinating. It's just both the culture, the and the technology that Appian has to make uh, development that much faster, especially in the space that we live in today, the environment of change and uh, and adaptability that we all need to have. So it's quite amazing, actually. And your background, I, until we were talking before, I, I didn't realize that you had done the COO jobs as well as CMO jobs. And that's kind of unusual, frankly. Denise. I don't know if you feel like you're unusual, but that is a little bit unusual. What drew you to both types of roles and 
does it really, does it provide you a different perspective as CMO? I imagine it does. Yeah, the tough part about um, straddling COO and CMO jobs is that it's really tough to find a job, right? Because you don't fit into the perfect mold and profile. And I always joke a little bit that I've had some ADD in, even in my own career. And that's why I really said that zigzagging is quite okay. And I would say that one of the benefits is that between the COO and CMO job is I really love to bring processes and data to the art of marketing. And ironically, I don't even know if I knew it in college, but my background for I have two degrees. One is production and operations, which is all around efficiency and statistics and quantitative methods. And the second one is a double in marketing. And I picked up both of those when I was going through college because it was so interesting to take, you know, structure and come in and do a calculation on deviation and then turn around and apply it to the art of marketing and looking at the data. And don't forget, when I was going to, you know, college, this was in the early 90s. So the data and the quantitative side of marketing had not come about yet. And all the CEO roles that I've had, it's always had a component of marketing and communications. And ironically, sometimes even created for me, like at SAP, I've never actually done a pure COO job, but I have done the pure marketing and CMO roles in the past. And I just love the, as I mentioned, the creativity of marketing, and you're truly at the center of everything in the company. And, you know, I'll just walk you through an example. My goodness, in the first, you know, 100 days or so here at Appian, we just went through a new brand and website launch last week, and it was all time consuming. We touched every function in the business and had to align all the stakeholders. And that's why I love marketing. You're just at the heart of everything. It is pretty funny. And when you're driving that much change, I mean, having the view of an operator, I imagine gives you a little a little boost up, even though it may be hard to find those roles, but like you have a wider perspective potentially than many CMO. Yeah. And I would say that in every decision that I make, whether we're investing in a new campaign or trying to figure out if we come in and, you know, let's say invest in content or advertising, because I love data and processes, I really, that's just the center and the foundation of everything that we need to look at before we even go down the path of making that decision. So their COO function fueled by a COO background really gives you a much more quantitative a focus. And that's, I mean, especially in fixing areas and doing turnarounds and doing transformation and scaling companies, it's just a great background to have. In the B2B and tech world in particular, marketers and CMOs own, at a minimum, the marketing-driven pipeline. And I'm curious, with your kind of like hybrid view of the world, right, operator and marketer, how do you think about ownership and driving sales pipelines? Look, pipeline is very important, but it is not the only measurement of success. What has been really different for me coming here at Appian, and I love that Appian is not a startup, but it's not a mature business like 
Oracle SAP, I consider us very much a scale up. And when I came to Appian, the executive team, as well as our CRO, asked me to really own pipeline for the entire company. And I love that. That's This is the first time in my career that I've been asked to own end-to-end pipeline. So it doesn't matter if the pipeline is um, coming from marketing or sales or partners. And there's so many times that in an organization, you're arguing so much on where the pipeline is sourced from, instead of looking at it as, look, if the CRO owns all revenue, why doesn't the CMO own all pipeline? And if the marketing team owns all of the pipeline, they're really looking at everything between multi-touch attribution, as well as making sure that the ROI is there for all the programs that are around the pipeline, as well as caring about not only that lead conversion, but every conversion phase within the entire pipeline cycle. And then everything that you do as a team impacts pipeline, right? Whether it be brand awareness, content investments, analyst relations, social, you name it, everything that we do should actually focus on quality pipeline and just not pipeline for the sake of it. The holistic notion that you described of owning all of the conversions, not just up to a certain point. I mean, it may get back to your operations days, right? Like the the bottleneck might be that point that you stop at, right? Versus looking all the way through the rest of the pipeline to convert through, through sales and through profitability. Does it change the role of a CMO? I mean, like, are you expanding or, or do you think the role itself needs to expand to include sales, to include or, or elements of the sales process to, to fully own the sales pipeline? I think it all centers around accountability, right? So many times in an organization, and I've experienced this in the past where sales is doing well from, you know, an overall deal and closure perspective, but let's say that marketing does not give sales enough pipeline. And then there's this constant back and forth between sales and marketing or vice versa. Marketing gives sales quite a bit of pipeline and sales is not able to come in and achieve its revenue numbers. And then there's then the question of, you know, hey, marketing, you didn't pass quality pipeline. And I think that if there's accountability for the marketing team to own all pipeline, then it doesn't matter where it comes from, right? So leveraging the partner ecosystem to sell into the customer base of the partners or coming in and running a program that, you know, makes sense uh, as part of conversion and ROI and not looking at it as just purely sourced. And I think that it minimizes the bickering back and forth and the ownership really is for marketing to be accountable to integrating to all aspects of the business and not purely justify its existence purely for lead sources. And I really like your concept of like, as a marketing team, are you driving enough pipeline to make it all the way through? I'm envisioning in my head like a uh, supply demand marketplace where like I want oversupply, if you will, of pipeline such that my sales team has, an, frankly, an easier time and, and less risk as it relates to each individual deal. And Alan, I would add that, you know, the key is quality pipeline, right? Because you could drive a lot of, you know, MQLs at the top of the funnel and get the initial acceptance. But if it doesn't eventually convert, 
And most marketers are not responsible for, let's say, the last stages of conversion and owning the overall, you know, ARR number with the CRO as well. This is when the tension is created between sales and marketing. And if every single marketer cares about every stage and the quality of pipeline, this would get minimized. Well, you joined Appian in December. I'm assuming that it's been mostly or nearly all a virtual experience for you, but what what has been your experience to date? Boarding during the pandemic is definitely interesting. I've only been at headquarters for one week. And as I mentioned, I'm very happy that I'm getting my second vaccination. So I'll head back down to headquarters next week. But during this time, the for me personally, during the pandemic has been a fun process because I love to get to know everyone. And I was not distracted between all of the traveling and the external meetings. So I felt I had a great opportunity to come into Appy and really do a, you know, listening tour. I wanted to meet the marketing team first. I spent the first 90 minutes uh, with each of the leads. And then, by the way, I hosted a sub-team meeting for about an hour for Q&A. And then I came in and met every single person in marketing on a one-on-one for 30 minutes. And, you know, it's always challenging coming into a new organization where you've got a little bit of the, you know, tug of your peers, the CEO, everyone trying to tell you where the priorities for the marketing team is. And I really felt that getting to know the team first was so critical in building the foundation of trust, as well as making sure that we were structured for the needed transformation. But it also really helped that the CEO and I met every day for the first week uh, for about 30 minutes just to have a daily touch point. And then I also met all my peers as part of the first couple weeks. And as mentioned, the first 100 days was super busy, updating everything from messaging and positioning, building out the content, reworking the thought leadership engine, while balancing reviewing deliverables and everything that needed to get the team ready for the transformation. But I really kept it simple because I look at we were really focused and still focused only in three areas for the year. One, we need to elevate the messaging and positioning. Two, we needed to build quality pipeline. And the third is really to raise the market awareness. So those three areas have been the focal point as part of the boarding. And it's reiterated. But as you mentioned, what you notice in when I was reviewing what was different during the pandemic boarding was having all of these meetings as well as anchoring everyone's expectations on where do we need to go and what was our North Star for the next year as part of our focus and to make sure that we had the right priorities for not only the entire team, but we solicited that out into and got buy-in for the entire company. I think that it's really important that as part of marketing transformations and coming as a leader, not only to be part of that listening tour, but to really take the key nuggets coming from the team as well as your peers and figuring out what is the strategy in order to be successful for the entire company, not just for the marketing team. No, those are some really good advice for anybody, especially somebody new to the role. Not to mention the the virtual environment that you're doing this in, um, at least mostly virtual environment. 
and I'm happy to hear that you're you're on your way to your second shot. I've got my first as well, waiting for my second to come in a couple a few more weeks. But man, I can't wait until I have that freedom again, or at least perceived freedom, maybe. <laughs> You know, you mentioned something about meeting with peers and spending that much time with your CEO as well. Peer-to-peer C-suite relationships are critically important. How have you been engaging with your peers? And like, what what advice would you maybe give other CMOs in that regard? Yeah, I would say that the my big advice is uh, don't prioritize just the integration between marketing and sales, right? That's quite natural. I think the key is to figure out how do you integrate to all of the business. So in the critical areas, for example, I have a one-on-one with all of my peers, whether it be the CRO every week, the CHRO, and then the rest of the team is set up in a bi-weekly meeting, whether it be the CFO, partners. So these are just some ongoing cadence that I've always had throughout my career, but it's even more critical as you're boarding a new company, as well as working on quick wins as part of the team. I also want to thank for us, the onboarding process was amazing because the HR team, I had the, my HR business partner partner had five pages of onboarding documentation, literally of who every, uh, you know, for the first week, who I would meet who I needed to consider having one-on-ones is just ongoing cadence. But I would have to say a special thanks, you know, to our chief of staff, Lang, who was really critical in my boarding process because not was only was she my boarding buddy and giving feedback on everything from the company meetings to the board meetings. And anytime that we have specific topics, I could run my entire storyboard as well as presentations through her. And she's super Congrats on again on the new the new CMO role. Although it's you're in your fourth month, fifth month, fourth the, month fourth now. Month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's still still relatively new, but you're getting. I'm sure you feel like you've uh, you've gotten your your feet under you, so to speak. Any advice for 
either CMOs or other people in marketing as they manage their career. You talked a good bit about zigging, zigging and zagging earlier. I'm curious if, if there's anything in there as well as any other advice you just give to people. Yeah, so I would have four pieces of advice. One is make sure the company that you're joining is a cultural fit. So don't forget when you're going through the process, not only are they interviewing you, but you should be interviewing them to make sure that there's a cultural fit. And you probably have just noticed from my background, I'm definitely not a job jumper, right? Uh, out of the 25 years, 15 of it was SAP. And even when I was doing consulting, I did it for about five years and workforce was another five years. So for me, the, you know, the number one thing is that the cultural fit is there because I really do believe this, which is you need to bring your authentic self to work. And I love, you know, a culture where I can argue, where there's dissent, where people are open, honest, you know, transparent. That's so important. And for me, finding that cultural fit was important. I would say the second part is, you know, know what you're getting into. I shared this a little bit earlier, which was the first 100 days, we had to go through an entire brand update as well as a web transition. And I was really thankful that in my career prior to coming to Appian, I had done this twice already, once with SAP and one with Workforce. So it was not so daunting to have to go through that process and just knowing exactly what the expectations are for the first, you know, 100 days that you're there. And by the way, in the Appian role, I met with the CEO during the interview process and actually shared a 100-day plan so that I could feel that, hey, I was set up for success. The CEO knew what to expect of having me come in. And there is a good match between, you know, both sides. The third piece is the size of your team does matter. And thinking about your own journey, right? Some CMOs are more startup. I love the scale up level where we're trying to scale to, you know, cross a billion dollar mark or not be as in a, you know, large environment. And I realized that this is really where I'm happy. And I really kind of shifted my career into that format. And if you don't want to manage more than 20 people, don't go into a large company because it's going to be highly matrix, lots of political meetings that you may not be happy with. So the size of the team team and the company really does matter. And then the last part and the fourth area that I would give folks advice on is also, you know, what does a growth projection look like, right? So if you're coming into a startup where you're going to come from let's say 10 to 20 million, it requires a different skill than coming into a company where you're growing 30 to 40% and more of a scale-up model versus a mature company that could be 90 to 100,000 people where your growth may only be you know, 10 to 15% a year. So that growth projection should give you an indication of where you should focus and what the expectations on the role is really required in order to be successful. So again, these are the four areas, right? Make sure there's a cultural fit, know what you're getting into, make sure the size of your, your team and the company, it does matter. And then the last part is what does that growth projection look like? Because at the end, everyone that is in a leadership position cares about impact. And these four factors really 
help you to really think through what would your impact look like coming into, you know, whatever size company is appropriate for you and your profile. That's fantastic advice. Um, I think you've netted, like you've, you've, uh, you've nailed the best advice that I think we've had on the podcast so far for managing your career. So (laughs) Denise, thank you. Alan, it took 25 years to get here. (laughs) I don't think I could have given those four nuggets even 10 years ago. It took a little bit of zigzagging to figure out like, you know, what would make me happy. And all of my mentees and everyone that I've coached in the past, I just tell them, think about these things. Don't look at purely the brand of the company that you're joining or the role because, you know, my husband always jokes about it. He's like, everything is a jacuzzi effect, which means you'll be happy for the first 30 days, maybe even 90 days. But like, think about like, would you be happy there in five years, 10 years? Yeah. Well, let's let's switch gears. I feel like we've gotten to know you a little bit already, but um, I always like to to dive a little deeper. And um, my favorite question to ask folks that come on the show is, do you have an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? Growing up in refugee camp, we escaped Vietnam in 79. And I lived in refugee camp for six months as a kid. And you know, the entire experience um, has made me super grateful and just an optimistic person in general. And my mom had four kids in the Vietnam escape, and literally she only had two hands and she could only take two kids. And I just happened to be one of the two middle kids. So it was my younger brother and I during the escape that fled. And my youngest brother was meant to go, but my uncle got caught during the escape. He went to prison for a period of time, but then ended up meeting us out in Malaysia in refugee camp. And my sister was never meant to go. And by the way, I didn't meet my youngest brother and my oldest sister until I was 21. So I really felt so much gratitude growing up as a kid and just kind of looking back in my entire childhood. And by the way, we we grew up super poor. You know, we lived on welfare. My mother literally just retired a couple years ago. She worked labor jobs all her life. And when I look at this, you know, amazing opportunity to come to the U.S. and, you know, live the American dream, I just think through, wow, what would have happened if I was the youngest or the oldest and not one of the middle two? And I just live my life every day with so much gratitude and just been given the opportunity to come to the U.S. It's amazing. I, I don't know that I, I knew that about you. And the many times that we've met before, it helps to it helps to understand your drive, frankly. And I'm I'm thankful that you were the middle two too. Otherwise we wouldn't have met. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, it's not a topic that typically comes up over a glass of wine. Hey, how are you? Tell me a little bit about your refugee background. Yes, exactly. Well, it should. It should. It's you. No, it's a, it's an amazing story. Thank you for sharing. Well, what advice would you give your younger self if you were starting all over? Oh my goodness. I would definitely say enjoy the journey. I worked so much when I was in my 20s and even in my early 30s. And I'm super thankful for my kids because they really forced me to slow down. And I kind of think about even in my first uh, year doing consulting. I mean, I was so lucky, as I mentioned, you know, when you grow poor, it's not like you're traveling all over the world. And besides studying abroad in Russia when I was in college, the next time I got on a plane, 
consulting was my first job. And when I was doing consulting, I was so lucky because I got onto this awesome project where it required me to provide training for CRM. And by the way, they sent me not only to Thailand, Japan, but also Paris. And I ended up going on about a three-week tour. But can you imagine that during that entire time, I did not spend any personal time in those countries. I was literally, you know, I was like, had to prove myself, get on the ground, be successful in the role. And I would say that it really took me getting, believe it or not, into my 40s to really enjoy the journey and be like, wow, in all the years, I was just rushing around, working, keeping my head, down, my head down. And I really look at, you know, in my 40s, now I'm really enjoying the journey. And that's definitely the advice that I would give my younger self is, why didn't I fly out on a Friday and enjoy a Saturday somewhere and not work? I was just so head down into the working. And I think that the balance is so important now. And I recognize the the comment or resemble the comment maybe about spending all your time in the hotel uh, not venturing out in these wonderful places that you might find yourself into from time to time so definitely enjoy the journey but really silly question but one i like asking because it's interesting to see what people are excited about or what they've recently purchased uh, for themselves but curious if there's been an impactful purchase of, say, $100 or less that you've made in the last six to 12 months. Yes, I'm quite obsessed with Moo Notebooks, M-O-O. Um, and the obsession is that I love to write and journal, and I've been doing this uh, pretty much all my life. And these Moo Notebooks are so awesome because they have a bind that lets you lay the paper completely flat. So the bind is actually detached. And what is so awesome is not only, you know, are they set up for like the college rule writing, but in the middle of the notebook, there is about 16 pages of coloring paper, uh, just white paper, but it's like the color paper texture that you can write notes and draw. And it kind of reminds me of a little bit of my childhood. And I am quite obsessed with them. I love them so much that I was thinking, wow, talk about disrupting the notebook market. And people that know me well have gifted me quite a few notebooks, rather, whether it be Moleskin or Shinola, but the Moo notebooks are the best. And I wish that I had invented them myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to check those out because I do, I still enjoy writing, uh, you know, my notes as well, like the the tactile experience of you know, ink to paper. So uh, I'll have to check those out for sure. They sound pretty, pretty fantastic. Two last marketing questions for you. Uh, curious, as you look around the world, so to speak, are there brands or companies or causes that you follow or you think other people should be taking notice of? I hope that during the pandemic, everyone has really slowed down and think about their health, right? As well as just uh, how do you optimize your own body? And I've been doing this for really focusing on this for the last three years. And, you know, I don't know if it's the whole thing of inching towards your 50s that kind of make you kind of rethink your own health. But I was very inspired by David Sinclair's Lifespan book. And it just created very much a scientific foundation on 
you know, how your cells work, how your body fuels itself. And I just love the science behind health. When I was younger, I was always dieting or paying attention to my health, but purely for external looks, not for the good feeling and optimizing the body, right? So for the last three years, I've done been doing intermittent fasting where I don't eat for 16 hours. And a lot of that is just to let my body recoup as well as the cells regenerate as part of the process. And, you know, when I was younger, I was very proud of the fact that I only slept for four to six hours. And now I sleep literally eight hours during the week and sometimes even 10 hours during the weekend. And just eliminating sugar was the other piece, right? The I eat a couple meals a day. I try to even bake with monk fruit and almond flour and really try to avoid processed foods. And then, you know, the last part is just moving your body, trying really hard to take 13,000 steps every day and to the focus where I'll get up and go out for a walk at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning before the day starts, and then take a second walk at night. And I think these things are so important to helping your body fuel itself, as well as using the science behind all of the stuff that's out. I think we're so focused on the external beauty of, you know, in our society, but we're not really looking at the health of our own body internally. I've experimented with the intermittent fasting, and I think I just need more people in my household to support it, <laughs> to make it stick. Is there any hack that you've come across? Do you and your husband both do it? Or I was just curious for my own personal benefit. Yeah. So by the way, as a male over 40, um, you only need to intermittent fast for 14 hours. So your body does not need as much recovery time as a woman, which is 16 hours when you're over 40. And yes, my husband and I do do it together. He's not as religious as I am. And I, I just think that the first month is really tough. But once you get through the first month and the first month while you're doing it, sometimes if you don't make it through the 14 or 16 hours, it's completely okay. My trick is drink uh, bone broth in between. So it helps you from getting the headaches and feeling, you know, kind of the uh, initial withdrawal of eating. But a lot of it is that we're conditioned in our society to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and we don't need it. But if you read through David Sinclair's Lifespan book, he gives you so many good tips as well as just the science of what your body actually needs. And, you know, he says that even if you're one of these folks like us, where we're sitting in front of our computers and not not moving the majority of the day, you may only need one meal a day to really fuel your body. And so try the bone broth. And then the other part that if you can't make it through initially, do it for eight hours, do it for 10 hours. And besides bone broth, if you need to eat, have an avocado, put a little salt on it. It'll help. Appreciate the tips. Appreciate the tips. I'll try again. We'll sit, Maybe we'll check in in a couple months and see if I'm still doing it. <laughs> Last question for you, uh, again, marketing related. Uh, what do you feel like is the largest opportunity or threat that marketers are facing today? Yeah, I would say it's both an opportunity and a threat, right? The market and society is just moving so quickly, and which drives companies to come into new markets as well as 
adjusting and changing, right? Nobody wants to be the last blockbuster or there's so many companies disrupting the market. And by the way, all of this sounds so easy, but the biggest threat is that marketing is just getting more and more complicated. And when I look at my journey within the last 25 years, just like if we were just to focus on the customer journey part of it, it's more complicated. The tech stack is getting crazier and crazier. I was just looking with the team last week because I was curious, like, how many systems do we have just to enable marketing to function? And by the way, there's over 25 systems, even at our scale-up size, in order to have marketing properly function. And it's really tough to be an expert in every area of marketing. But the key is to be open to learn and always asking the right questions. There's no expectations that as a CMO or a leader in marketing that you would know every single facet is just moving too quickly, right? Every single, I would say two to three months, there's new technology, whether, whether to support digital marketing or, you know, social engagement. I mean, it, it's just our area is just getting more and more complicated. And this um, other piece that is, whether it be an opportunity or you want to see it as a threat in marketing is that marketers are also expected to come in and be tactical into every single detail, but at the same time, be strategic and drive the strategy and the growth of the company. And what I always say to marketers is that focus on the growth, like do something that will drive growth for your company and partner with the entire business to drive growth. And sometimes these ideas can come, you know, purely from a discussion with the CHRO or the VP of engineering or head of engineering. It doesn't always have to come from sales. Well, Denise, this has been fantastic. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Alan. I cannot wait till we see each other in person and definitely over a glass of wine. Absolutely. Absolutely. See you soon. See you soon. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with support from my team and podcast editors, sound engineers, and writers at Share Your Genius. Find them at shareyourgenius.com. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. You can contact me on marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you will also find complete show notes, links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. 